Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Sophie. Hello, Jade. I wasn't sure if you were going to start this week with a sing song, but no, that's fine. Look, I can't always treat your ears with my beautiful voice, but... I know, you don't want to over-promise and under-deliver. I know, right? How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I was trying to think about what I've even... I was trying to think about what I've even done this week. But yeah, it's all in all been a good week. We've had two days of recording this week, so mm. I've seen a lot of you. Mm-hmm. Some would call that a high, many would call it a low. <laughs> many, wow, okay. <laughs> no, but all in all, it's been a good week. My low of the week is yesterday I started having one of those days, you know, when you just feel like you're a bit pre-sick, like I was just a bit achy all over. And you know, when you try and convince yourself it's from a workout you've done and then you're like, oh no, I think that's more than just sore muscles. And then the head starts to go a bit. And anyway, that was probably the low of my week because I missed out on hip hop. But you had your period. And I have had my period this week and I stupidly did quite a big workout on day two of my period, which just why, I don't know. I need to not do that next month. Anyway, I went to bed last night at 6.30. I said to Nick, I'm sorry you are doing this whole nighttime thing. I'm going to bed. And woke up this morning at six o'clock and that was so good. So, so good. And of course, the one night I decided to go to bed at 6.30, both the girls went to bed without a fuss at seven o'clock. So always the way. But I was like, I don't even care. No. Yeah. So, and I've woken up this morning feeling absolutely great. So my low kind of turned into a high because I had a somewhat like 12 hour sleep. So that was good. And then my high of the week was that one of my best friends had her baby, little Pippi Ray. So I have been actually, when we recorded this episode this week, she was sitting in the corner 40 weeks pregnant, basically begging for an induction. This is so um, funny. It's funny how, yeah, anyway, she didn't end up having an induction. But, yeah, she has had her gorgeous little baby and it's really scratched the itch of newborn cuddles. Wow, I didn't know with, where that was going then. Yeah, no, her baby hasn't scratched any itches. It's really filled the void of wanting a newborn in my life but without having to be the one to have a newborn so I get to do all the cuddles. So you like I a get- grandparent. Yeah, basically. And she lives really close to me. So yeah, I get to get all the newborn goodness uh, with a full night's sleep. So it's all good. And what has your week been like? Well, my week has been a little bit disappointing, actually. Yeah. Oh, you want to know? No. So we. (laughs) Please, I beg of you, tell us. I (laughs) am on the edge of my seat. I can tell you're so wrapped to be here, Sophie. (laughs) Yeah. So we were supposed to go down to Melbourne to see my friends and family. We have not seen them for nearly two and a half to three years now because I was pregnant with Yumi. Then we moved house. Then. This little thing called Yumi COVID gave birth happened. and then COVID. Yumi gave birth. Oh, well, you know what I mean. <laughs> I really need a coffee. <laughs> the visual on that. Yeah. And is it the Trump doll that you always post on your Instagram? It is the Trump doll that yeah. I actually thought about. It's not okay. Yeah. So 
We aren't going, unfortunately, because Victoria and their lockdown shenanigans are just not letting us really do what we want to do. So we're staying here, we're staying put, but the high is I can fly to Tasmania next weekend and go and see Dark Mofo. So that is okay. And then once this all opens up, we'll hopefully be able to go and see our friends and family. But of course, our hearts go out to the Victorians that are actually the ones who are stuck in lockdown rather than us just not being able to visit them. Yeah, look, I, I'm not going to be hard done by. I'm very grateful that we are in New South Wales and we're not in lockdown and my friends and family and everyone else in Victoria, my heart does go out to you because I just, I, honestly, I can't even imagine. I mean, I said this when I cracked it that I can't come down and see everyone, but, yeah, it's just, it's very unfair. And any highs in your disappointing week? Yeah, my high is that I'm going to Tassie next yeah, week. Yeah, you've already said that. So, but that's not <laughs> this week. That's next week. <laughs> no, it's that not. is a disappointing week. All right, now moving on. Do you have a mum hack for us this week? Do I ever? Are you ready for it? Okay, this is a low-brow mum hack. That got sent in. That got sent in. I think I originally heard this on a podcast, but I don't think it was yours, but it works so well. Well, if it was a good one, then definitely ours. Anyway, do a click and collect for the weekly grocery shop. Say you need your significant other to watch the kids while you do a massive food shop. Get leisurely pettied or coffee or lunch and then come home with a huge (laughs) shop and don't have to use up a free kick. How good (laughs) is that? Whoever is doing that, you're an absolute legend. I mean, you're not lying. You are doing a huge food shop. Because you thought of it. Yeah, totally. All right, now moving on to a rude or fabulous. Rude or fabulous. This one was sent in. Hi, ladies, hope all is well. Have a funny yet infuriating rude or fabulous moment for you. I was at Audi yesterday. Mm. No, there's more. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be mean. I was at Audi yesterday (laughs) with my partner and 15-month-old. A man standing next to me asked my partner if he had permission to speak to his woman. I was in complete and utter shock that I answered his question about green curry paste instead of punching the sexist pig in the face. Oh my! What year rudeness. are we in? There's nothing fabulous about that. That's not even a. That's just rude. Or I know, fucking but, rude. Look, I'm not going to give him credit, but how old was he? Like, let's be serious. I don't care. Get with the times. Well, I don't think old people do get with the times. <laughs> that's the sad thing. Anyway, that's rude, rude, rude. But thank you for sending it in. Now today's episode will just launch straight on in. We're talking to Dr. Timmy, answering all your questions about inductions. Mm-hmm. And Sophie's had a couple, so. She she puts her 10 cents worth in. Always. And I put my 10 cents in places I haven't even experienced. Oh, wow. So. <laughs> <laughs> that came girl. out not how No, I let's keep it. it. And on that topic, <laughs> we do chat with your dad, Dr. Timmy, and we hope you enjoy. <laughs> Dr. Timmy, welcome back to the podcast. It's been too long for any of our listeners who haven't listened to one of your episodes yet. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are? (laughs) He's so scared. (laughs) You know who you are. Come on, tell everyone. I'm not the same man I was when you first met me. I mean, dealing with this fame, dealing with being Dr. Timmy is is an (laughs) onerous load on me. You know, now I'm up over 700 followers and... I was actually speaking to um, Megan and Harry overnight, <laughs> and uh, 
<laughs> you got the same publicist. Oh no, they're just you know just I might have pocket dialed them. I don't know, but I was just talking to them about <laughs> dealing with the fame and the shaming and all the rest of it that you get oh, in these. I sorts remember of you were on Oprah. Yeah, I'm not so keen on Oprah. Yeah, but, fair so, enough. Fair yeah, they and I, I said, look, I was at Tweed City the other day, and <laughs> you know I could barely get through Kmart without <laughs> all the people pulling me over for a. For a, selfie and <laughs> for a selfie and advice and everything. But, yeah, fame it comes with its burdens. It really does. It's, it's, it's hard to deal All with. All right, I'm just going to jump in here and I'll just introduce you for you. This is Dr. Timmy, also my dad, most importantly, Sophie's dad, but he is also an obstetrician, gynecologist and fertility specialist. And so we chat to him about all things pregnancy, birth, etc. And we are today going to be talking about inductions and we put up a question sticker on our Instagram and wowie, people are confused. They want to know more about inductions. So that's why you're here. Okay. That's a good reason to be here. Confusion, you know, confusion about induction because so much of the information people are getting about induction is based on anecdotes. It's based on long-term myths. It's based on people who want their obstetric care based on what they've read on social media or what their friend who had an induction tells them. And, you know, I, I really don't feel that anecdotal medicine is ever a good form of medicine. And uh, it's better to base your management of your pregnancy on facts and on, on reality and on, on people who've gone to a lot of effort to try and do studies and, and look at best outcomes and and come up with ideas for best practice. It's it's really important to base your management on facts, not on what people want you to think is the uh, is the way to go because it suits their agenda. I just want to paint a picture for everyone right now. We have a 40-week <laughs> pregnant woman in the corner of the room just listening in for the hope that if she does give birth, <laughs> Dr. Timmy will be able to help. So just so you know, there are four people in this room right now and fingers crossed that happens because we will go live and we're, if not, we're going to do an induction anyway, aren't we, guys? Yeah, we're going to do an on-air induction. It's, it's going to be called what we call spiritual induction. <laughs> where if enough people think hard enough and close their eyes and have their fingers really close together and think, waters break, waters yeah, it's, break. It's it, like, um, what is that movie chart, um, you know, where they level with the two feet? Oh, that looks inappropriate, <laughs> doesn't it? You know that that's, movie? Yeah, that's how you examine someone as you're inducing <laughs> yeah. them. That's, that's them. I've seen that movie. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Let's start at the beginning. Sure. Inductions for beginners. Go. What is it and what is involved? What's happening? Yeah, well, induction is short for induction of labour, so bringing on labour. So it might be in a very medical situation where someone's being induced because there's a serious complication of their labour and uh, of their pregnancy, sorry, and, um, you know, people could have preeclampsia or growth restriction of their baby or severe diabetes or or something that really is an important medical reason that their baby um, needs to be delivered for either the mother's well-being or the baby's well-being or both. And sometimes that might be well before the due date. That might be very, very early on. However, the earlier on you get, the less likely the baby is going to tolerate induction because by induction we're meaning bringing on labour, therefore labouring and delivering the baby vaginally. So 
if it's very, very early on, neither will the baby be able to cope with being put through a labour, nor will the cervix and the uterus be ready enough to have a labour and be delivered. So there are plenty of very strong medical reasons for induction. And then another form of induction would be where someone has already broken their waters and is going to have something to help them start having regular contractions, so bringing on labour because the waters have broken. And then the other form of induction would be in a completely well pregnancy when someone reaches term and the conversation occurs around when the baby will be delivered once the pregnancy's reached term. And I'm talking there about an uncomplicated pregnancy. Is one way of inducing better than another? Well, the induction should suit the situation. So when I say situation, it could be any of those things I just said. You know, is it prior to the due date? Is it due to the waters breaking or is it after the due date? And then, of course, the pregnancy itself, how's it going? And one thing that influences the method of induction a lot is whether this is your first baby or subsequent baby. So if a woman has had vaginal delivery before or indeed any number of vaginal deliveries before, it will usually be easier to induce labour. And so as we go through the different methods of induction, we can talk about where those methods might be applicable in each of the different situations. So what are the different methods? Well, first of all, we could break down induction into two parts. That would be the ripening of the cervix and the readiness of the cervix and indeed uterus to go into labour and then methods of breaking the waters and then methods of bringing on contractions because contractions are indeed labour. So if somebody is not in labour and their waters haven't broken and their cervix is firm and closed and not accessible to break the waters, then you will do one of numerous methods to get the cervix ready for the waters to be broken. So that can be the use of prostaglandins, which either come as a gel or a prostaglandin, sort of a tape that's put up around the cervix and releases prostaglandin over a a sort of 12-hour period. So those methods involved applying prostaglandins to the cervix and prostaglandins are known to be involved in the sequence of events that leads to cervical ripening, or you can more mechanically dilate the cervix by inserting a balloon. So the balloon is obviously deflated like a catheter on a little tube which is passed through the cervix to the inside edge of the cervix. Then the balloon is blown up using some fluid in the balloon and then some gentle traction placed on that so that you're gently putting pressure on the cervix to dilate it and that will lead to the release of prostaglandins from the cervix itself rather than applying the prostaglandins. However, that of course can be easier said than done. To insert prostaglandin gel is just a pre-loaded syringe with no needle on it, of course, with a, a few mils of prostaglandin gel and just doing an internal examination and squirting the contents of the syringe in next to the cervix, whereas to put a balloon in is obviously a lot more fiddly and has to be passed through the cervix, which in someone having their first baby might be quite tightly closed. 
And do obstetricians generally have kind of a way that they get used to doing it and then most of their patients would then get that kind of sequence of events? Absolutely. There are some hospitals that will train doctors in using a certain technique. For example, the prostaglandin gel we use is quite expensive. So in some hospital systems, they prefer to use the catheter through the cervix, the balloon technique more often because it's less expensive. And therefore, doctors who train at that hospital will become very well versed in the use of that method. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, all of those techniques are trying to create the same outcome is that after a period of time, and it's usual that you would give the gel or the other prostaglandin or insert the balloon in the evening with a view to commencing labour the following morning, and all of them have the aim that the cervix will be ripened and it will be more straightforward to break the waters the following morning. And it is important to note that some women with these interventions will actually go into labour just after the prostaglandin or the insertion of the balloon. And although you couldn't call that spontaneous labour because you have done an intervention, you've only just put the gel in and the waters break on their own and contractions start happening and the baby delivers with no other intervention. All you've done is done the the prostaglandin or put in the gel and the following steps that we'll discuss uh, were never required. Is a stretch and sweep considered an induction? And regardless, what is a stretch and sweep? Yeah, I don't think you'd call it an induction. I guess you'd call it an induction if it worked because you did the stretch and sweep and then the person went into labour, so therefore it had the purpose <laughs> of of leading the person to be in labour. But a stretch and sweep is when if the cervix is dilated enough already, the obstetrician can insert their finger through the cervix and that, of course, is then touching the baby's head and sweep the cervix away from the membranes around the cervical canal. And, and depending on how soft the cervix is and how open it already is, try and stimulate the cervix and stretch the cervix and push the membranes away in the hope that that will lead to what would be the natural release of prostaglandins that would preempt the onset of natural labour. I've never been a big fan of stretch and sweep simply because of two things. Number one, if you do a stretch and sweep, it is not uncommon for that woman to present in the next 24 hours to the delivery suite or at the very least phone the delivery suite concerned about blood loss or mucus loss or bloodstain discharge or the onset of sort of irritable pain and strong Braxton Hicks that aren't labour but are quite painful and therefore there might be a one or two sleepless nights ahead. And the second reason is I feel that if you want to induce a patient, why don't you just induce them instead of doing something that's seen as being a sort of moderate way of achieving what you want to achieve without calling it an induction. I think if you've decided at a consultation, look, let's induce the labour, well then if the person is favourable, and that's the term we use in obstetrics, meaning the cervix is soft and a little bit dilated, well then if you want to bring on labour, instead of doing a stretch and sweep, why not bring the patient into the hospital, break the waters and get the labour started and actually do what you're intending to do. 
And so you've had the gel or the balloon or some form of cervix ripener overnight, yeah. but you haven't gone into labour. So what happens next? Yeah. Well, in some cases, the cervix won't have changed at all. And therefore, a second dose of gel might be required. I think you'll find that most specialist obstetricians would very rarely find themselves in that position because most people would be able to rupture the membranes the following morning, really regardless of how much the effect the gel had. And that's where it's wise perhaps the week before you're contemplating doing this induction to do an internal and just check where the cervix is is at and, and like what the readiness or as I used the term before, favourability for induction is so that you don't find yourself in a situation where you're bringing a patient in for induction and they're in a very, very not ready situation and you sort of work yourself into a corner that they're in the hospital, they're waiting to be induced and the methods you're using aren't bringing labour on. So a second dose of gel would be rare and the most common thing the following morning is that you would break the waters and there's a number of ways of doing that. So you do an internal examination and there is a an instrument with a ghastly name of alligators and what that is is it has the same handle as a pair of scissors and then a long stem and then like a little nipper mm. on the end which has a tooth in it. Not a human tooth, just a, or even an alligator tooth, just a, a metal tooth on the end of it. And therefore, when you open and close the scissor like handle, the, the small end of the instrument opens and closes. So you pass that small end through the cervix using the scissor handle, open the instrument and grab the membranes, which are usually like closely applied to the baby's head and then pull down and that will pull down the membranes and and like pop them and quite often when you then pull the instrument out there'll be one of a hair from the baby on the instrument which is all well and good for saying funny things about the baby having its first haircut but certainly it's very reassuring to see that hair there because you obviously know the membranes must be ruptured because if you've got a hair in the little instrument's head then you know that you must have got through the membranes. So regardless of how much fluid comes out, you know you have broken the waters. Can it actually be difficult to tell? Like I feel like when I got my membranes ruptured, it was very clear. Very clear. Like can it be Yep, you can have anything from a a tsunami of fluid coming out to virtually none. Does it depend on how you are sitting and like the way the baby is for it it, to come out? The way the baby is. So if the baby is very deeply engaged and well and truly in the pelvis firmly, then the head will act like a plug in a a sink and, and therefore very little fluid will get around it. And other times, because there's meconium lycor, the lycor is quite thick, so it doesn't come out in a big gush. Mm -hmm. And other times, for example, if the reason you're doing the induction is because the baby isn't growing well or has poor amount of fluid around the baby, well, there's not much fluid to come out. So occasionally it's absolutely resoundingly obvious that fluid's coming out and other times it's a little bit less obvious. Yeah, Goldie must have been up at my throat or something because it just (laughs) came flooding. (laughs) 
and then there's a little instrument called an amni hook, which is a, a bit like a crochet needle. It's a cream-coloured, long plastic stem with just a, a little sharp spike on an angle uh, at the top of it. So you pass that through the cervix, pass the hook part into the membranes and pull. And then there is another instrument called an amni cot, which is is actually like putting a condom on your finger and that condom has a spike on the end, oh, good. end of it. So please don't try this at home. <laughs> that, don't mix them up. <laughs> yeah, from a tactile point of view, that certainly you can really feel that you're in the right spot and you can, um, you know, you actually be pushing on the membranes with the tip of your own finger. But I actually haven't seen an amnicot used for quite a while and it's usually either the amni hook or the um, alligators that we use. So... Having used the gel or the balloon, we've achieved cervical ripening to the point where we're able to rupture the membranes. And then the second step was we ruptured the membranes and we've now confirmed that fluid is coming out. The next step we need is, of course, contractions. Now, some people will be contracting, as I already mentioned, some people may have delivered by morning. You don't even have to break the waters. The waters broke themselves overnight or labour, in fact, occurred following the gel. But in the situation where we're not in labour but we have broken the waters, then we would commence an infusion of oxytocin, which starts at a very low dose, and then you gradually increase the dose in time increments. In some hospitals, that would be 20 minutes or half an hour. And you increase the dose with the aim to get four strong contractions every 10 minutes. So that might sound a bit mean because that may be four 40-second contractions every 10 minutes. But one of the great positives, and I'm sure we'll get to this of induction, is that you want to remove that latent phase of the labour, that part of the labour where it's all pain, no gain. You want the contractions strong and close together because that's what will achieve dilation of the cervix and that will be what will achieve being in labour and giving birth. So that drip doesn't have to keep being turned up all the time. It just gets turned up until the contractions are happening regularly enough and there's evidence that cervical dilation is occurring. And then even in some cases where too many contractions occurred, you may even turn the drip down. But the idea is to achieve regular strong contractions. And what is the monitoring involved in an induction? Can you still go in the shower or have a water birth or do you have to remain? You will certainly prior to the commencement of the induction, you would have a CTG, obviously to check that the baby was okay before you did anything because if you were to put in prostaglandin gel and then do a monitoring, if the CTG is abnormal, how are we to know that it wasn't abnormal before you put the gel in? So before you start this process in anyone, you would um, have a monitoring done and then following the uh, insertion of the gel or balloon or whichever technique, you would have further monitoring. If that patient was in hospital and going to sleep after having the gel, then you would take the monitor off and then put it back on when they were in labour. And if a person has a syntocin on drip running or, or, as I said, the oxytocic drip running, they would be monitored at all times. But a lot of monitoring now is done with what's called telemetry. So that's that's basically wireless monitoring. So the 
the little listening pad goes on the tummy and the pad that detects contractions goes on the tummy, but there's no wires involved so the person can walk around, can shower, things like that. And with regard to a drip, I mean, a drip is just a small cannula in your arm connected to some tubing, so there's no reason why someone can't be mobile and walking around and still going in the shower and being active with that. You've been induced once, is that right? I've never been induced. Oh, you've never been induced? No, I've had had one induction. No, so I've had my... I've had a, I've had two stretch and sweeps and my water's well my water's been broken and then it's play on yeah yeah but yeah. I haven't actually had the the other stuff that you know yeah brings have a drip no or anything. no 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 mm, okay yeah, so it's I- interesting that the word induction is used and also the word augmentation is used so for example if someone's not in labour and you want to bring labour on you would call that an induction. And in the situation where someone broke their waters and wasn't labouring, you would call that induction. However, if the person was contracting regularly Mm -hmm. and you broke their waters as a means to try and make their contractions become more regular or if you commenced a drip to try and make the contractions stronger and closer together in a woman who is already in labour, you would call that augmentation. But please don't be confused by that. I mean, the terminology being used is irrelevant. The aim is for regular, strong contractions. That's the aim. So when anyone is talking about progress in labour or pain relief in labour, you're talking about how well the cervix is dilating in reference to whatever means it is that got the uterus contracting, whether it occurred spontaneously or as a result of the drip or other inductions. What are the most common reasons that a woman will get induced? Well, I guess these days the most common reason would just simply be that they've reached term and term could be defined as from 37 to 42 weeks. So pre-term as a word meaning someone who's less than 37 weeks and post-term in some categorizations strictly relating to people over 42 weeks, whereas other categorizations would say that post-term was after 41 weeks. Again, these are just words. These are just definitions. They don't make any difference to decision-making. But the most common reason would be that someone has reached somewhere around their due date and wishes to have their baby Although it is important to remember that 10% of women will get high blood pressure with their first baby, so they may well need to um, be induced, and about 10% of women will get diabetes in their pregnancy, and uh, due to the risk factors associated with diabetes, they will uh, need induction. And the other one, of course, is where someone presents having broken their waters and not in labour, where you wish to get the labour going and you'd call that an induction. So there's a lot of common reasons. So if Katie in the corner is 40 weeks pregnant and she's over it, can she walk into the hospital and say, I want to be induced? Well, this is this is sort of the sore point for me, is that um, can you tell? in some hospital environments, whether that be private obstetrics or in a public hospital situation, and whether that be where the primary caregiver in the pregnancy is a specialist or a trainee or a midwife, I feel very strongly that people should be able to have input into this decision-making process. 
And therefore, while some people who would work and they then say, no, we won't even discuss induction until you're 42 weeks, they've gone against the very specific mantra that they were carrying, that they they were trying to give women more choices, they were trying to manage women and involve them in the pregnancy, when in fact by offering someone induction or at least offering them the conversation about induction was a much more patient-orientated and patient decision-making being taken into account and valued at the end of the pregnancy. And now that science has shown, and there's been many studies and the evidence is overwhelming that the stillbirth rate goes up as you go beyond the due date, I think all women at 40 weeks gestation, so at their due date, should either be offered induction or at the very least be counselled about their options and the pros and cons of proceeding from there. And if they're not, then that woman was in fact deprived of information and deprived of the opportunity to make an intelligent decision about what their options were going forward from 40 weeks. So I don't believe that a patient should have to be pushy or should have to be considered by those caring for her to be a pain in the neck because at 40 weeks she she wants to use terms like I'm over it or I want to have my baby now because interestingly the science says that that woman is in fact completely right. Her opinion is completely validated that she has every right to request to be induced at 40 weeks and for anyone to be told as she approaches her due date, no, we won't be talking about induction until you get to 42 weeks. I just think that that is incorrect, unscientific care. And while some women may say, no, I still don't want to be induced, I do want to give it more time and whoever the caregiver is will, well, not undoubtedly, but will usually respect that decision. At least the conversation was undertaken that there are risks involved in going overdue and then therefore the person was able to make her decision based on actual factual information rather than just being told this is a conversation that we're not having. So would you suggest that like ideally 40 weeks is a healthy term to be induced or would you recommend 38 weeks? Oh, no, no, 40 weeks in the absence of any other variable. And let's face it, I mean, how many pregnancies get to 40 weeks and there's no other variable involved? Like I've already said 10% high blood pressure. 10% 10% diabetes, you know, Sophie herself. He's looking at the back going, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> Sophie her, herself had uh, pruritus in pregnancy and pups. You know, there's lots of reasons why it might be um, indicated. And indeed, even your cultural background should be considered. Um, subcontinental women have a higher stillbirth rate from 39 weeks onwards and 39 weeks should be considered full term and induction offered from that time. What about people, though, who state that, you know, your due date is more like an estimate date? So why is so much emphasis put on that date? That is true, although it would be true to say that people listening to this podcast who are technologically advanced people clearly 
the dating of pregnancies is now extremely accurate and nearly everyone would have had a scan by 13 weeks and probably more than half of the people listening to this would have had a scan somewhere under 10 weeks as a sort of dating scan, even if that scan was performed in the doctor's office, not at an official ultrasound facility. So we can only use the due date we've got. And and that's why very early on in the pregnancy, because the earlier you are, the more accurate dating is, I like to lock down a due date and so that we can use that due date because there's nothing more frustrating than a patient reaching term and, you know, we say today is their due date and then a conversation comes up with, oh, well, actually, according to my calculations, my due date was a week ago or a week from now. I think it's always very helpful for both the carer and for the pregnant woman to have a due date that is sort of agreed upon. Only 4% of babies will spontaneously deliver on that day, but we have to have a day as a secure due date because otherwise it's becoming a little bit silly in terms of decision-making. And if that day sort of comes along, it doesn't necessarily have to be that actual day that the induction occurs. It might be done a couple of days before or a couple of days after. And is it within a woman's right and will that be respected by healthcare professionals if they were to decide at 41 or so weeks that they still did not want to be induced? You know, I have this conversation in meetings very regularly with people about patients' rights to be involved in the decision-making process. So I would like to think that by the time the patient has reached the time when their baby will be delivered, that they have enough confidence, faith, trust in those looking after them, that the advice they're given is honest and unbiased and not manipulative and not trying to achieve the caregiver's agenda but trying to be achieving the best possible outcome for the pregnant woman and her baby. So it would be somewhat disappointing to say to a patient, look, I really think you've got to a point in your pregnancy where there is nothing further to gain and there is everything to lose at this stage. And I would really recommend that we, we make a date that would be the end point and, and, and as far as we'd go. And for the patient to then say, no, I, I don't want to do that, um, would be a little disappointing, especially as her firmness with that decision may well be based upon incorrect advice or incorrect stories that have been told to that woman about the consequences of being induced. And it's a fear of induction, which may not be based in real facts. So how much power can a woman have during an induction? Well, no one has the right to insert prostaglandin gel or rupture membranes or put in an an intravenous cannula and commence medication without the patient's prior consent. And in doing an induction, as there may be multiple steps involved, you would usually, prior to even starting, get that patient's consent in advance by explaining clearly what the steps are because it's pointless if you put in the gel and the next morning you break the waters and then the patient says, great, great, I'm happy with everything so far, but I don't want the drip. And then you're left with a patient with ruptured membranes who's not in labour, who doesn't want the next step. So it's really important to properly discuss the whole sequence of events with the patient and obtain their prior agreement and consent that they wish to undertake an induction of labour with the purpose of going through the steps that lead to labour and then having the baby. 
But I guess at some steps along the way, like I remember with my second induction, my obstetrician broke my waters and then just like left me for a little bit to see if I would then go Correct. into labour that way, which I didn't. But um, Oh, very, yeah. very often. And so all of medicine, I guess, is subject to the exact situation that you're in and the management will be determined by the exact situation. So it could be an obstetric advice type situation where you've broken the waters, the head is really well down, the patient's had one or two babies before and you say, look, before we start the drip, let's just have a walk around for an hour or so and we'll see how you're feeling and see if some contractions can start on their own because, as I said, the prostaglandin gel does prime the uterus a lot and so a lot of women will go into labour from the gel alone. So that situation might come up just purely from advice that, look, I'm confident if you have a bit of a walk around, the contractions can start without the drip. And then there will be other situations, particularly in busy hospitals, where because there's more manpower required or staff required to run a syntocin on infusion and, and the drip, it might be that the patients had the gel, had the waters broken, but the drip can't be started for a few hours because they need someone else in the labour ward to deliver before they can safely start the drip. So that that's that that can happen and that's okay. The patient's in a safe place and is being well looked after. Another common scenario I find in private practice is that you've done the gel, you break the waters, And then the patient says, look, I'd like to have an epidural before you start the drip. So I've got to the point now where we know labour is about to start because you've broken my waters and you're about to start the drip. So the patient will have an epidural and therefore have the epidural put in before the contractions have started or before they're painful. And then the drip starts once the epidural's in. So when I had Billy, I walked in having cramping and I didn't know I was 38 weeks pregnant. And they said, you're six centimetres dilated. You're probably going to give birth today. And nothing really happened that day. So they broke my waters. And within half an hour of them breaking my waters, they're like, I think we're going to give you something to bring your contractions and your labour on. And I just said, give my body like a minute for a second to like go down the hallway and let me do my thing and come back and see if it can do it itself. And I did. I went down the hallway and as soon as I came back, I mean, I know this doesn't happen for everyone and it was a birth between 16 months, but I literally gave birth in an hour and 20 minutes after breaking my waters and I I didn't need to have any of the intervention because I sort of felt that I could feel something coming along and I wanted to give my body a little bit of a go before going down that next route. But they did. I mean, they were a little bit like, well, you can or we can just do it now. And I said, well, we'll give my thing a go and then you can do your thing after if it doesn't work. Yeah, so- you always need to have a lot of respect for patients' intuition about how things are going and what is right for them unless that intuition is something that would be dangerous for them or for the baby. And, yeah, certainly somebody who is in your case, like almost silently reached six centimetres dilation and then had her <laughs> um, her waters broken. Yeah, that would be the sort of situation where you would commonly say, look, let's get you to have a walk around, have a shower, you know, move around a bit, Let's them, let the Lycor drain out now that we've bro- broken the mm. waters. And if you haven't started having more regular contractions in an hour or two hours or, or whatever the time may be, we'll commence a drip and we'll start it on the very lowest dose so that, you know, because your body's clearly already more than halfway through doing what it needs to do, 
and um, just sometimes just the absolute whiff of a little bit of oxytocin and their contractions are strong. And certainly if it's not your first baby, those second five centimetres can really fly by very, very quickly and you can go from um, zero to hero very quickly. That was me twice. But how do you know, like, because I genuinely had cramping and I thought it was Braxton Hicks overnight and I was really uncomfortable and I just called them and I said, I don't feel like I'm in labour but I'm having consistent cramping and tightening. It's not unbearable. Mm. And when I walked in, they said, you literally like six centimetres dilated and I it would blew my mind because I'm like, surely I would have known that. Yeah, but the reality of the situation, if we look at it from outside rather than you looking at it from inside, is that you're validating the very point I just made that you have to have great respect for people's intuition. So you did ring the delivery suite, you did go into mm. the delivery suite and you were examined and you had your baby at the hospital. So whilst you might, in retrospect, negate your thought that you needed to go in, you went to the trouble of ringing, you got in your car and you drove there. And that's why for every person who delivers having unintentionally not made it to the hospital, there's a 100 people that deliver within 15 minutes of getting to the hospital. People have overwhelmingly strong intuition that I need to go to the hospital now. And, and I tell my patients, if, if your intuition is that you need to go in, don't ring and ask to come in. Ring from the car and say you're on your way. Is there any difference in when you should be induced if your baby was conceived spontaneously versus IVF? Like should IVF babies be induced earlier or anything? Good question, and now that such a high percentage of babies are conceived using assisted reproduction, I think the most important thing there is that the patient may well have other medical issues and would also be more likely to be older, and therefore older patients, you know, I would be less likely to allow them to go beyond their due date, and also it's highly likely that that patient is going to be more anxious about their pregnancy and, in fact, probably more accepting of interventions given the high level of intervention that was required to conceive the baby. And can, with no medical reasons, can you choose to be induced? And if so, what's kind of the earliest you can have induction by choice? I think by choice, you would say somewhere between 10 and 14 days prior to the due date, because there is evidence that like 39-week babies do do better than 38-week babies in terms of likelihood of admissions to the neonatal nursery, etc. So if a patient came in and wanted a purely self-chosen induction, I'd try and get the patient as close as I could to 39 weeks, perhaps 38 and a half to 39 weeks. When I went in requesting an induction when I had pups rash with Poppy, my obstetrician was very much like, you've got to get to 38 weeks and then I'll induce you. I mean, there was like a reason I wanted to be induced, but he was less comfortable inducing me in like the 37-week mark than the 38-week mark. Well, you can imagine if there's a noticeable difference between 38 and 39 weeks, there'll be a very Mm. significantly noticeable difference between 37 and 38. But I would reassure anyone listening who requires induction under 38 weeks that the outcome for babies now at 34 weeks, if the baby is normal, is the long-term outcome is the same as a baby born at term. So, you know, we're very good at looking after early babies. They just might be a little bit harder work at the start. And why is the rate so high when looked after by an obstetrician? Is it to do with their holidays? 
No, well, it's interesting. I went through 2020 without having any holidays and I'm sure that my caesarean section rate and my induction rate didn't increase or decrease or undergo any form of change in a situation where I basically worked every consecutive day for 11 months. So, no, I don't. also in lockdown. I don't. I, I think that's one of these sort of myths that's used as a sort of a little bit of a nasty way of saying that, you need to be wary of your obstetrician. I'd be wary of people who didn't give me choices more than I'd be wary of people who gave me choices. And if an obstetrician is inducing someone at, say, 39 weeks and says, look, I am going on holidays next week, you're welcome to not be induced and my colleague who's looking after my patients will induce you or wait till you go into labour or you can be induced before I go, many patients will choose, having been told their options, to be induced. So I don't think that that was for the doctor's convenience. I think that that was to try and give the patient the opportunity to have their birth within the relationship Mm. they've established with their obstetrician. Which is exactly what my second induction was. At 39 weeks, I got induced because my obstetrician was going away and we'd formed a really good relationship. I loved my first birth that was also induced and, yeah, I wanted him to be there when I gave birth. Yeah, so I think the, the sort of cynicism about induction and that, you know, doctors want to play golf or they or they want to do have holidays is, is really just a sort of a bit of a silly way of looking at it. The other thing is that if your obstetrician perhaps has days in the week where he or she is particularly available, so, for example, if I had a day where I had a very long operating list in gynaecology, I wouldn't do an induction on that day because that will mean that it's more difficult for me to complete my list and have my concentration on the operating list. So I would then maybe do the induction the day before or the day after when as soon as I'm called, I can quickly go. Now, if I'm doing my operating list and I get called to a delivery, well, that just happens and I have to go. But if you're actually choosing a date and you're actually specifically booking something in, you can book it in at a more ideal time. But that's kind and of that, for everyone. And that cuts just, both ways. Sometimes yeah. I have patients whose heart knocks are, you know, fly in, fly out workers or they play sport and might be travelling interstate regularly or for any number of reasons they want to say, I'd like to have a little bit of control over the date I have the baby because of availability of my partner or my parents or it suits me better. And and that's, that's a two-way conversation, not just doctors sneaking off to the golf course or on holidays. I'm intrigued. As an obstetrician, not me, obviously you, how long does the hospital and the midwives give you before they say, Dr. Timmy, you need to get in here? Because obviously you have, you know, a lot of time doing other things. You don't want to be waiting around 24 hours. Is there a, like a, a way, is there a code, is there a, you know, centimetre? Yeah. I guess there's when you first start at a hospital, it might not have established yet, but there should be a sense of mutual respect between you as the obstetrician and the people you work with. They know your preferences. They know the way you like to do things. So, for example, I'm an obstetrician. who I don't mind being called in the middle of the night to be told one of my patients has come in in labour, even if I'm not required yet. It's just nice for me to know that the patient's there so that the following morning when I wake up, I can get up earlier and go in and see the patient in the labour ward. And if you know the patient is in the labour ward, then you might say to the midwifery staff, look, 
I'm going to be operating today, so could you please you know, give me plenty of notice if you think the patient's approaching full dilation or if you've got some sort of predictive idea about the patient's labour isn't going well and that the CTG or the monitoring of the baby isn't healthy so that I do have the time to get here. But it will always happen that occasionally you'll just get the phone call out of the blue, come now for delivery. And that's just part of being an obstetrician. And you have to have strategies in place to deal with that so that if you have to leave an operating list or you have to get someone to go on your behalf, you're always ready to do that. Is labour more painful if you're induced? No, not at all. And that that is just not true. And indeed, the cumulative, if you would like to say you could in some attempted objective way, look at the total amount of pain in labour, there's less pain in an induced labour. Now, the main reason for that is that I'm sure your listeners would have heard of the latent phase of labour. That's where you're sort of, you're starting to go into labour and you may be having some irregular contractions or you might be having strong Braxton Hicks, but you're in fact not dilating. So therefore, that's all pain, no gain. So in induction, we tend to move more directly into the actual labour part of labour where you're having regular contractions and you're having contractions that are producing cervical dilation that are are helping you towards delivery. So labours are usually shorter when they're induced and therefore the total amount of pain is actually less. And a contraction is a contraction. So we usually call them, you know, mild, moderate or strong. And whether you have a mild or moderate or strong contraction during a spontaneous labour or during an induced labour, it will be of exactly the same intensity and exactly the same pain. And so it's not like it's perceived as more because you haven't maybe had that like warm-up phase of the latent phase? No, labour is labour. And a contraction is a contraction. And I think that everyone has different pain thresholds. Like I think if you speak to someone that's had, you know, a cesarean and an induction and it actually be really interesting to have someone on that has had three different or two different births. But for me, even with three natural births, every pain was completely different. Yeah. Like I can't, I, can't, I couldn't say what that would be like. It was just completely different for every child. And I, and I feel like pain also when you're in it is so different to when you look back on it in hindsight. Like after I gave birth both times, I looked back afterwards and was like, oh, that wasn't <laughs> that bad. But when you're in it, you're like. <laughs> Hell no. I mean yeah. it, Katie, it's an amazing yeah, experience. Fine. It'll be fine. Well, well, I remember when. Your mum went into labour with you, Sophie. You know, one of the first things she said was, oh, you know, you forget how much it hurts, you know, because you were the second. So there's sort of nothing that can, like, um, stimulate your memory of what a contraction feels Hmm. like except having another contraction. (laughs) And it is, whilst people say, you know, I've given birth to three babies and it hurt more having a kidney stone, it's not the same thing. And So is it worse to be kicked in the balls or to give birth? Well, I would say it would be far worse to to give birth and... I have enormous sympathy and, and I you were going to say something else. And I have a, a, enormous sympathy for women when they're in pain in labour, particularly if they're frightened. And I also mm. have enormous respect for women who, you know, embrace labour as something they're looking forward to. And, you know, when I see patients having their first baby at visits at 38, 39 weeks, you know, I say to them, how are you feeling? And and you you always know that the real answer is that it's a combination of excitement and terror. 
you know, you're so excited to see this baby. You're so excited for the pregnancy to be over, but you're so at the same time terrified of, is it all going to go well? Is my baby going to be all right? And how am I going to cope with the pain? So Katie's in the back nodding along to you going, oh, totally. (laughs) Now, this is a personal question. So I've been induced twice, great labours, but both quite fast. So like Poppy was only six hours, Goldie was an hour and a half, and both of them I went from like five to ten centimetres dilated in like 20 minutes. Next time, I'm not pregnant now, if I was next time to spontaneously go into labour, am I likely to have a fast labour or is there no idea to know how I would like quote unquote labour naturally? Absolutely, you would be likely to have a quick labour and interestingly my answer is going to be the same. It's because with your third labour and indeed often with your second labour, that latent phase usually is like let's just skip straight to the proper contractions Mm. and the progress. So any Indeed, in your situation and even more so in your mother's situation where, you know, she didn't have six hours of labour for three children, it was, you know, you may well get induced with your third just so that you make it. I mean, the hospital you go to is, you know, a significant drive from here. So therefore, you may well say, look, if I get, I mean, you may go into labour before the planned date and, you know, all obstetric plans are subject to alterations. But if you were to get to 39 weeks, you'd be very wise to be induced because you're in the hospital, you're safe and sound, you're there, have your waters broken, you probably wouldn't need the gel in a third because you'd be so ready to go by then and um, and have it in the security of the labour ward. I think we asked this last time, sport. did you deliver your own babies or not? No, no, no. Um, I, I actually nearly delivered Seamus uh, third, Ned. He's, in, a, he's in, also your <laughs> third. <laughs> <laughs> In the car park of the hospital because um, we were living at the hospital at the time, which was convenient because from go to woe was um, about 15 minutes. But I did run down to the labour ward from the outpatients clinic and Shima wasn't there yet, so I went out and found her leaning against a car in the car park with her head on the roof of the car and huffing and puffing and I could tell just by the look of her she was fully dilated. So I got a uh, wheelchair and wheeled her in through the front door straight into the delivery suite. We popped her on the bed and she pushed Ned out. Aww. <laughs> so I nearly did that delivery but a beautiful midwife in England who I'd worked with for the whole two years because Ned was born basically in my last week of working at the hospital. Um, in England? In England, a, a lovely midwife, Marg, who was the head of the unit, uh, delivered Ned and it was lovely. But it wasn't on the asphalt of the car park, unfortunately. No, no. <laughs> now, are you more likely to require an epidural or ask for or demand an epidural if you get induced? I think the answer to that is yes, but that's not a bad thing. So for a couple of reasons, yes. Number one, you've already started along the pathway of intervention and and this is where those against inductions will will chirp up now. Well, there, there you go. There's an example. So getting induced means you had to have your waters broken and you had to have the gel and you had to have a drip put in and you had to have an epidural and then you ended up needing forceps, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're in the hospital from when you're stone cold, like you're not in labour at all, then you're obviously an epidural is an option all the time, whereas in the case of walking into a hospital six centimetres dilated 
having your waters broken, walking up and down a corridor once and then coming back and pushing a baby out, you're much less likely to have an epidural because you simply weren't in the labour ward. Or Sorry, I apologise. My age is showing that I call it labour ward. It's now called delivery suite. But you're in the delivery suite for such a short time, there was no no time to even consider epidural. So I think that one of the reasons why epidurals are more common in inductions is not that it's more painful. It's just that you're in the hospital when you're naught centimetres dilated right through to 10. So that conversation and that opportunity is there for your entire labour. And epidurals do not deserve the reputation they have. And I think I've said on this podcast before, the advent of the epidural is almost certainly the greatest advance in obstetric care in the history of obstetrics. I guess the one that would probably be up there and perhaps beat it would be ultrasound. But ultrasound and epidural would be, you know, the two great pioneering you know interventions that have been created for pregnancy care and have made it safer and better for women you know it, my mentors when i was a young resident you know they they delivered babies back in the days when someone needed a forceps they were given the true ether general anesthetic you know that's the rag with the ether poured in it on it like a spy movie oh and um, put over their face asleep put the forceps on, drag the baby out and then let them wake up again because, you know, delivery can be very painful and helping a baby out can be so painful that a woman can't tolerate it and can't cooperate. And we're so blessed these days to have an ethodist that that can help out with an epidural and I think it's something that should be greatly appreciated, not scorned. And there I am giving credit to anaesthetists for coming up with the greatest obstetric intervention (laughs) and not even obstetricians. So is the cascade of intervention talk, is it true? So if you get induced, are you more likely to go along a cascade of continued intervention, which may, like as in, are you more likely to require an epidural and then require instrumental or a delivery or require an emergency cesarean. Is that the case? No, I certainly wouldn't agree with cesarean. I would agree that it is more likely if you've had an epidural that you would need an instrumental delivery. But I would always say to a patient, yes, you'd be slightly more likely to have an instrumental delivery if you have an epidural. But if we look at that question the other way around, if you need an instrumental delivery, would you prefer to have an epidural there? And the answer to that is always yes. <laughs> so I I do agree that because of having an epidural, you may slightly increase your risk of instrumental delivery. Yes, I do agree. But would that mean that I would suggest someone not have an epidural? Absolutely no. And And do remember, in private practice, you do see every patient after their delivery six weeks later. So you do question the patient about aspects of their labour and facilitate them giving you feedback about how their labour went and what were the up and down sides of their labour. You also visit the patient in hospital daily after she's had her baby so that if there's something that they want to discuss with you that they were either particularly happy about or particularly unhappy about, then they can tell you. But I can tell you from well, now 30 years of experience that the vast majority of women who come to see me six weeks after an induction of labour would say to me that they were extremely happy with the way they were cared for, not only by me, but by the hospital and midwives and and all the other staff who make up a maternity unit. 
and they're very happy and they're very happy to do it the same way again the next time. Indeed, I'll never forget inducing a patient and she had the uh, gel, then she had her waters broken, then she had an epidural, then the drip started and she delivered early that afternoon and she had a normal delivery, pushed the baby out, no stitches, and as she lifted her baby up onto her tummy and up onto her breast, she looked me straight in the eye and said, I'm embarrassed how easy that was. And that was the most that was the most beautiful feedback you could possibly get. And I'm very happy to say I've subsequently delivered her next two daughters. So that's three babies, all with inductions, all with epidurals, not one stitch. And very happy mum. That's a really nice story. Why do you think people's experiences of induction are so different? Like, I mean, speaking from someone who had two, I think, incredible births, I loved my births and I got induced with both. And some people have real horror stories of inductions and yeah. kind of don't recommend that anyone gets induced. It's like, yeah. it's like look, everything, look, isn't it? Not only have I spent 30 years seeing patients in my rooms to discuss obstetrics and I've hung around labour wards for 30 years and and you'll learn a lot just by being in labour wards because you're not only, oh, sorry, delivery suites, um, you're not only seeing the patient that you're looking after, you're hearing the discussion about what's happening with other patients in that delivery suite. So it's a little bit like you're living your life on the set of One Born Every Minute. Wow, and, I love that show. And so like whilst you've only got one patient in labour, there might be five patients in labour and you are hearing every single permutation and combination of how birth could sort of evolve over the course of a birth. And unfortunately the one sort of undeniable truth of childbirth is that contractions are painful and having a baby come through your pelvis and out through your, you know, your vagina and perineum is painful. And therefore, a lot of people will reflect on childbirth as a very painful experience. And I'm sorry, I didn't invent it that way, (laughs) but yeah, I get it. And as much as, as a male, I you know, will never experience it. As an obstetrician, it is something I would love to have experienced, but I've certainly had plenty of experience watching it. And for some, it is an anxious, painful process. And, and that's why you don't just say, oh, well, we can take the pain away with an epidural. You, you take the pain or the fear away by being supportive and making the patient feel that they're in an environment where people care about them, where people are sort of there for their benefit and and that's where we you, when you work with a great group of midwives you have the opportunity to really care for people in labor so even though it was painful and even though it was scary it was still a positive experience are you more likely to tear with induction no i, w- I would not agree that you'd be more likely to tear with with the induction I guess if somebody was trying to sort of find a way of justifying the statement that you're more likely to tear, I guess you could say that if you induce someone really early, the baby might be more likely to be in a posterior position, therefore it might be more likely to be slightly more difficult to deliver and therefore more likely to need stitches. But that is absolutely like inventing a case to fit the answer. Mm. Um, I think that, that whether you tear or not is mainly due to the position of the baby and the control 
of the delivery of the head. And that's got a lot to do with the midwife or obstetrician who's delivering the baby, a lot to do with how controlled the pushing can be. And if the patient's able to listen and and push when told to push and not push when they're told not to push and the position that the woman is in as she's giving birth. And of course, the size of the baby will have an effect. They will all determine whether or not you tear. And so you did say that induction doesn't lead to a higher chance of having an emergency cesarean? Not at all. Of course, if you were to look at the cesarean rate in inductions versus spontaneous labours, of course the cesarean rate would be higher because you'd be inducing people because the baby's small for dates or you'd be inducing people because they've got high blood pressure or diabetes or some other complication of their pregnancy, which meant they were more likely to have a cesarean. So people hide behind statistics like that and say, oh, look, you know, the rate of cesarean in induction was higher than the rate in spontaneous labor. And, you know, and because remember, spontaneous labor includes all those people like your mum who walked into the labor ward and delivered the baby before there was any chance of anything happening to them. Mm. So you're just not comparing apples with apples. You, you're, you're comparing a completely specific subgroup. What impact does the sudden influx of synthetic oxytocin have on a baby? Well, it'll have no effect on the baby. And remember that it is actually, as I said before, we start on a very, very low dose and then gradually build the dose up against the monitoring of how regular and how strong the contractions are. And indeed, we now start with doses very markedly less than they used to be. So a very small dose is given for the first 20 minutes to half an hour, and then the dose is only gradually increased. Of course, if the baby is compromised because it is small or it is unwell in some way, labor itself is like a stress test on a baby. So during contractions, the baby can become distressed because they don't have much reserve to cope with contractions. And that's where a cesarean may be required during labor because the baby becomes distressed because it's not coping with the contractions. But they could be contractions that had been brought on by induction or they could be contractions that were brought on in spontaneous labor. And how long after birth does the medications continue to have an impact on your body? Oh, well, the Sintocinon would flask. Often just after delivery, we actually turn the Sintocinon drip up so that that helps the uterus to contract. But basically, as soon as that Sintocinon infusion is stopped, it will immediately be out of your body. And indeed, your pituitary gland would normally make oxytocin. So after the birth, most of the oxytocin that's in your body would be from your own creation of it, helping the uterus to contract and involute and not bleed. At what point, like in an induction, does your body realise that it also needs to create its own oxytocin? Like does it ever affect, you know, your ability to breastfeed or bond with your baby or anything like that because you've had synthetic oxytocin? No, no difference at all. And this is another situation where people make the um, evidence fit the crime so that if someone's having difficulty breastfeeding, there might be three rooms on the postnatal ward in a row where all three women are having trouble with breastfeeding and the, the woman in the first room had an emergency 
emergency caesarean and she's told, oh, well, you're having trouble breastfeeding because you had an emergency caesar and the lady in the next room's having trouble breastfeeding because she had an induction and had a forceps delivery and the third lady is having trouble breastfeeding because she walked in and had a really quick labour and the baby came out really quickly. The, the, the truth is that a lot of people have trouble breastfeeding <laughs> and you can always find a reason to explain it. But at what point does your body kind of kick in and know that it needs to produce its own oxytocin? Like, because, you know, you've gone into the birth suite, you know, what did you call it? Stone cold at zero. Yeah. Like when does it realise that it's like, oh, I should be doing We're this too? We're not able to separate out the oxytocin flow that's occurring from the pituitary and from the drip. If you're referring to, you know, the readiness for breastfeeding, well, the oxytocin doesn't ready the baby for anything because, of course, when babies are born by cesarean section, they're just as ready to be fed and they're just as ready to exist outside of the uterus as a baby born by a vaginal delivery. And I'm not going to go back on one word I just said then if someone wants to come up with a whole lot of things about cesarean babies being less equipped for things. No, I meant every word I just said. And usually, you know, letdown reflex and milk, so-called, coming in is due to attachment of the baby or nipple stimulation, whether that be manually or via the baby sucking. You're full of information. Oh, you still got more. I will say one more thing about Syntocinon too, that um, one of the most eminent professors of obstetrics in the world worked at the Royal Maternity Hospital in Dublin, and his passion was to reduce the caesarean section rate in women. He actually was able to achieve successfully caesarean section rates at the Royal Maternity of around 5%. And his way of managing labour was that anyone who was in the labour ward had to be managed actively. So funnily enough, it was called the active management of labour. So when a woman came into the labour ward, she was commenced on syntocinon and that syntocinon or, you know, the oxytocin on the drip, And that was gradually increased until four contractions every 10 minutes were achieved and the patients were regularly examined to ensure that progress was occurring. And that was associated with an astronomically low caesarean section rate. So again, if someone was to argue that induction or oxytocin drips increases your caesarean section rate, in the biggest study ever done in the world on giving syntocinon in labour and referred to as the active management of labour, which would currently be referred to as the interventional management of labour, they achieved the lowest caesarean section rates. Thank you, Dr. Timmy, so much for coming on. It's a pleasure to be back. I've loved being back. We've missed you. I hope I can be back soon. You will. And lots of people wrote in saying they, you know, I've got an induction booked in a week and I just keep being told, you know, horrible stories about inductions. Can you please just say some positive induction stories? And I want to say I've got two positive induction-induced births and so many people wrote in saying I don't understand why induction gets such a bad rap. I had an incredible birth. And I've got thousands of stories and even though I didn't give birth to any of them, I I think that uh, to, to deliver a baby in a safe caring environment with people looking after you and monitoring you closely and really caring about being advocates for both you and your baby. That's the most beautiful thing about giving birth, to have the confidence that knowing you're in the right place when you need to be. Absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Timmy. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. 
You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.